Well, two things as we get started today uh, that I want to point your attention to. One is we have red pew Bibles in, in the pew in front of you. And uh, if, uh, if you're here tonight, I, I would hope that you'd open that because you're going to need that as we walk through the text. One of the things that we do here is uh, we preach through the Bible. And so we'll be constantly, especially tonight, uh, referring to the text that you just read um, in the Bible. I think it's on page 1169 in that red Bible. So please do take that out. The other thing is, uh, on the worship program, there are notes uh, that will help you, especially if you go to one of our life groups. You can discuss the sermon by, uh, by taking notes on that note sheet. So that should be a guide to you. The other thing about that note sheet today, that worship program, is that you can see I've put a little Galatians glossary. Glossary. Is that a term you use here? Glossary? Okay, good. Because some of the words that Paul uses in this in this text, uh, and, this, and, and actually all throughout Paul's writings, are, are not very easy to understand. So we need to, those are kind of definitions that will help you this week and probably going forward as well. <clears throat> as I studied this passage this week, I found myself a bit surprised. This is a very complex passage. It's, it's not natural to our ears. I mean, there's some mountain peaks of verses. I am crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Those are some precious verses to people who have been Christians for a long time. But it just is, the argument is a bit foreign to us. And it's not just the language thing. I mean, Paul, of course, he's writing in, in Greek. We're reading in English. But this is more than two different languages. When Sarah and I moved from the U.S. to the U.K., you know, we all speak the same language, but I just quickly realized that we conceptualize things a lot differently. You know, often I'd be making a point or I'd be making some kind of, you know, what I thought was some humorous comment, and then people, I would just get this blank stare, and then I realized whatever I'm saying did not connect. And then, you know, I'd, I, okay, well, I just need to explain it a bit. And then I explain why that was humorous. And, and I'm still getting a blank stare. And I soon realized the way we think, the way we operate, they're just totally two different mental frameworks. We think differently at a very core level. Well, I'm just reminded as I studied this passage this week, you will really struggle to understand the Apostle Paul, especially here, if you don't understand the Old Testament. Um, because Paul is a Jew. And he has grown up his whole life studying what it means to be a good Jew. And he is immersed in the Old Testament, especially in the law. And he has a whole view of history that is very different than ours. And so one of the things I want to do is a bit unconventional this evening. Maybe a, a tad academic is actually try to, before we get started, just show you Paul's view of history and his view of the Old Testament and his view of the law. So can we see that? Well, probably not. Um, I'll explain it either way. This is Paul's essential view of history. God created a kingdom where there's humans, and he created this kingdom of humans to represent and reflect him. But humanity rebelled, right? And the next thing you see there is that God decides to rescue humanity, this kingdom, by choosing one particular nation, Israel. And he says, I'm going to start, I'm going to restore my kingdom through these people, Israel. And then right after he does it, he gives them the law, the law of Moses. 
And the law of Moses is very important because it's going to guide Israel. It's going to show them how to live and how how they can be separate from all other nations. But most importantly, it's going to show them that they need a Messiah. And so for this long period of, of, of human history, basically the entire Old Testament, this law of Moses is the governing document. It's like the Magna Carta or the Constitution for Israel. And they have to obey it, and they have to keep it. But the purpose of this law was to show them that they needed a Messiah. When when their lives and character reflected off the, the law, what would happen is not confidence. Well, we're really good people. It would be, we don't measure up. We fail to reflect God. We fail to live up to his law. But the big point is that when the Messiah comes to establish the kingdom of God, he would fulfill the law's demands. And so you have to understand in Paul's mind, you have the Old Testament, this Old Covenant, and basically this New Covenant, and you have what, what do you have right in the middle? Jesus. And in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, you have Israel, and the law of Moses governs them. And so they need to make, in the, in the law, there's animal sacrifices. If they want forgiveness for sin, they've got to, they've got to get forgiveness by sacrificing an animal. There's circumcision. That's the way you enter into the people of God. There's the Sabbath. And there's many, many, many more laws, okay? And all of these laws are to guide them, but they're to point them to a Messiah. And they're to be fulfilled in a Messiah who will come and save, and all of those laws will be fulfilled in him, such that when the Messiah comes, there's no need for animal sacrifices because he's the true sacrifice. There's no need for circumcision. He says, I'm the true circumcision. That's Jesus. And the book of Hebrews says, I am the rest that Sabbath promised to give you. So it's all fulfilled in Messiah, such that when the Messiah comes, you don't go back to the law. To go back to the law is to reverse the clock of history to go to a Christless existence. So that might have seen, okay, where are we going with all this? That's in the background of Paul's mind. And if we don't get that, his, the way he argues is going to seem very, very strange to us. So we kind of move on. Where are we at in this letter? Paul is defending his gospel, the original gospel, which he received by this miraculous encounter with the risen Christ. Jai taught us last week from the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2 that this gospel message was affirmed by the apostles. But the authority of the gospel is not dependent upon these apostles. In fact, the gospel message stands over and in critique of the apostles when they err. And that's precisely what we see this evening, particularly in verses 11 through 14. Paul openly rebukes Peter for denying the gospel, not with his lips, but with his hypocritical actions. And in the remainder of chapter 2, verses 15 through 21, Paul digs deep into the essence, the, the core of what, it, what, the, what this good news means to show Paul, Peter, sorry, Paul Peter, his actions are wrong. So what's the main point? Don't deny the gospel. Not only with your lips, that's what they did in, in Galatians 1, but now with your life. Specifically, how is Peter denying the gospel? 
He's denying the gospel by suggesting with his actions that these Gentiles, that's non-Jewish people, all right, need to observe the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. They need to live like Jews in order to have God's favor and his acceptance. So number one, don't deny the gospel with your life. Let's read in verse 11. When Cephas, that's Peter, okay? Cephas, same name for Peter, or different names, same person. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So this is the continuation of of the previous narrative. Apostles have affirmed the gospel of, of the freedom of the law. You're not under the law anymore. And it appears that sometime later, Peter now joins with Paul up in Antioch. And they're ministering amongst Gentile believers. And and Paul openly rebukes Peter. This is the same Peter that Jesus says, upon you, upon this rock, I'm going to build the church. Okay, it's an important figure, right? And verse 12 explains what had happened. Read with me. For before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So here's Peter teaching the gospel alongside of Paul to these non-Jewish churches in Antioch. And of course, he's eating with them, naturally. This might not seem to a big big deal. Why do you care that he's eating with them? But you have to remember, Peter is a Jew. He grew up. In Judaism, he grew up under obeying the law of Moses, those those commands that you find in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And part of what it meant to be a faithful Jew before God was to obey the law of Moses. Well, the assumption here is that if Peter is eating with the Gentiles, he must be eating forbidden food under the Mosaic law. You can read uh, Leviticus 11. Okay, And it gives a very clear, detailed what, what, what kind of food is clean, what kind of food is unclean. If you're an Old Testament Jew, you don't, you know, you're not eating bacon. Okay, So this group of Jewish Christians, comes from, uh, Jewish Christians comes from Jerusalem, they're sent from James, and they're likely expressing concern to Peter. You know, Peter, I know that you're a Christian, but why are you forsaking these Jewish food laws? So Peter, contrary to his own convictions, begins to distance himself from the Gentiles. He stops eating with them. He stops fellowship, fellowshipping with them. Why does he do it? The text says because he's afraid. Peter believed the gospel of freedom. He believed it. He didn't think that these Gentiles needed to start observing the law in order to be right with God. He didn't think they needed to start eating only certain kinds of foods in order to be saved. But he was more afraid of men. What they would think about him. What they'd say about him. Perhaps even what they'd do to him. So he pretended, when they came, that he was still obeying, observing the Old Testament law. He was being a total hypocrite. Let's read the next verse. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. Verse 13. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So now Peter's actions have influenced other Jews, even Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas is Paul's closest 
companion in ministry. It's his co-laborer in the gospel. It's the one that kind of brought him into the, the whole group of the apostles. And even Barnabas has been led astray. And their lives, he said, all these guys, their lives are functionally denying the gospel that we're preaching. But one small application here is don't underestimate how your life influences, your, your life both public and private influences others, right? We, have, we live in an incredibly individualistic age and culture. And we often think whatever, the decisions I make in private, they don't affect others. That's nonsense, Paul would say. Sin is contagious. It influences others. What you do in private does affect others. It's one of the reasons we have Christian community, right? If you're in a church, then we understand that the the community shapes the individual, and the individual shapes the community. Your life matters for this church, and this church matters for your life. And you have to know, understand both. Let's read Paul's rebuke in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Cephas, in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? So Paul first says in this verse, listen, your actions are contrary to the very gospel of Jesus Christ. The very gospel you are preaching, you're denying with the way you're living. And then Paul begins to explain why. And this is, a bit, this is where it gets a bit strange, I think. You are a Jew. That means Peter, okay, speaking Peter, you grew up under the law, okay, obeying the law. But you're here eating with the Gentiles. You're not doing that anymore. Why? Because you've embraced Jesus and you realize that once Jesus has come, there's an end to the law. So you're rightly eating. You're, you're a Jew, and you're rightly living like a Gentile. That's right. How can you now distance yourself from the Gentiles and stop eating with them? Your actions are suggesting to them that they can't become a true Christian, a full member of God's people, unless they observe the laws of Moses, specifically the food laws here. Peter, your actions are telling them that faith is not enough to enter God's kingdom. You have to also obey the law. And then he's saying, the hypocrisy, because you're not obeying it yourself. There are a couple things we can learn from this. First, you can deny the gospel with your life or with your actions just as much as you can with your words. And that has happened a lot throughout Christian history. Don't believe that just because you know the right things to say about Jesus— that your life is also affirming the same gospel. People believe the gospel all the time, but then think that the gospel makes them morally or culturally superior to others. In fact, two weeks ago, I made this point that if your understanding of Christianity gives you a sense of superiority, either morally or culturally, then you have not encountered the gospel that Jesus is preaching. One example, racism. It is a really clear form of racial, cultural superiority that undermines the gospel. It undermines the gospel. Paul will later say in this very letter, there's no Jew, no Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Jesus Christ. 
And then Paul says in, in, in the book of Ephesians, the next book, that he describes the, the gospel as Jesus breaking down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. What he's saying there is, if you re-erect the dividing wall of hostility, racism, that's a denial of the gospel you proclaim. There are all kinds of ways we can deny the very gospel we believe. Perhaps you think believing the gospel means you can live immorally because you're already forgiven. That's a denial of the gospel that transforms the heart. Friends, ask yourself this question. Is the way I live in line with the gospel I proclaim? It's a good question. Another application here that's not explicitly noted in the text, actually. But we know later on that Peter received this rebuke. He didn't continue living in an inconsistent way. Peter was an apostle, perhaps the most foundational of all the apostles, okay? And Paul rebukes him. And Peter takes it. Listen, if you live in Christian community, church, okay? You live in church. And you are a sinner. I should cover most of us here. Then at some point, you're probably going to receive some kind of correction. And that's not a bad thing. That's called the Christian life. Christians are those who speak the truth in love, and sometimes even the loving truth hurts deeply. It's difficult. Someone says, listen, Luke, I've seen this pattern in your your life, and it's dangerous. It's dangerous to you. It's dangerous to those around you. And you know everything inside of you, everything inside of me wants to say, that arrogant person, who do they think they are to, to tell me that? They don't know me? They don't understand my situation. In fact, they have no right. Friend, becoming a member of a church, okay, is by definition opening your life up to others. Our membership, you understand this, I can't defend it right now, but I will if you want me to later. Our membership is saying, I am accountable for you, and you're accountable for me. It's saying, my, if my spiritual life starts to go astray, it's your responsibility to bring me back, other member of our Rotherham Evangelical Church. And if your life starts going astray, it's my responsibility to help bring you back. That's what the church is designed to do, to take spiritual responsibility for one another. So let's not be a church who resists loving correction, but embraces it for our own good. Let's not be so sensitive that that we think we are beyond the need for loving rebuke. This is hard because it doesn't come natural. We definitely don't want to be a church that's hunting for rebuke. That's, That's even more unhealthy, right? But friend, I'm telling you, if your participation... in a a tight-knit community, in a tight-knit Christian community, a church, has never yielded loving correction. There's something going wrong in the way you're doing church. 
in the rest of chapter 2, Paul continues arguing that to require the Gentiles to observe and obey the Mosaic law is to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does this by digging deeply into what the gospel means. So, number two here. The gospel core. You are declared righteous by faith and not works. I want you to notice that it's important. I think it's easy to misunderstand what's going on here. Paul is, con- or Peter, Paul is continuing to speak to Peter here. His quotation is not over. The, the quotation continues through verse 21. So he says this. Peter, we, you and me, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that Jews aren't sinners and Gentiles are? No, 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 not at all. It's just a different way of viewing how people are sinful. Jewish people were understood to be sinful because they broke the law. Gentile people weren't under the Mosaic law, but they were sinful because they were lawless. Okay? So he says, continuing on, we Jews know that a person isn't justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we've come to across one of our glossary terms, haven't we? What does it mean to be justified? This word is really important because it comes up throughout all of Paul's letters. It's, it's a legal term. The judge stands before the offender, the defendant. Do you guys call him the defendant? No. Yes. Yes. Okay, the defendant or the offender. And and if he is justified, he declares him not guilty or, or positively he declares him righteous. And therefore, if you are not justified, the declaration of your life is guilty, condemned. We need to be clear here. To be justified is a verdict. It's a declaration of righteousness. Judges are appointed to declare people who are innocent as righteous and people who are guilty as guilty, condemned. Their pronouncement doesn't make you righteous or transform you into righteous. It it says what you are. Right? But that appears to be a problem. Because a good judge cannot declare someone to be righteous who is guilty. That's, That's the definition of a bad judge. Right? There's no justice in that. Can you imagine if someone broke into your house, stole your belongings, and murdered your loved ones? Okay? They get caught. They get prosecuted. And they're sitting. You're in the law court. They're sitting there. There's the judge. And he looks at them and he says, Listen, you're clearly guilty, but are you sorry for what you did? And this offender says, Yeah, I'm deeply sorry. I I wish I would never, I regret it. I wish I would never have done it. And the, and the judge says, you really mean that? He says, yes. And he says, okay, I declare you not guilty. You're free to go. You would stand up and say, no way! There is no justice in that! And you would be right to say so. They murdered my family! What kind of judge are you? Not a just one. But you see, God can declare the guilty as righteous because he, as the judge, takes off his robe 
And he goes and sits in the seat of the defendant. And the gavel of his judgment comes down upon himself. He doesn't ignore justice. Oh, he is very much in the business of giving justice. But the cross is where the innocent Jesus is declared guilty at the cross. God, the judge of the universe, considered sinners righteous because he already considered his son condemned. How do we get this declaration of righteousness? That's salvation, right? How do we get it? I want to be Luke, righteous! Not by works demanded in the law. Paul is clear. Everyone stands condemned under the law. You're not going to get saved by your best effort. Now, this is, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, important time in history, and I think it's significant that there's a crucial disagreement here uh, between the Roman Catholics and Martin Luther over this phrase, the works of the law. Roman Catholics interpreted the works of the law merely as the civil and ceremonial bits of the law. Okay, you might, civil and ceremonial, what does that mean? Circumcision, dietary food laws, property laws, those kinds of things, okay? But the Roman Catholic Church argued that Paul still very much believes that you need to keep the moral aspects of the law, the Ten Commandments, for example. You need to keep the moral aspects of the law to contribute to your salvation. That's how they interpreted this. And Luther and the Reformers said, no, 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 the works of the law refers to the whole thing, even the moral bits. One verse that I think supports this, and I think there are many, is found in this very book, chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law, same phrase, right, are under a curse. And then he explains, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything in the book of the law. See that? So if you rely on the works of the law, he's saying, you've got to obey the whole thing. So we believe this is the whole law. If we could be righteous by observing the law, then Jesus, he didn't need to die for sinners, did he? We are justified, though. How do we get this declaration of righteousness? By faith in Christ. If you embrace Jesus, your substitute, in faith and trust, you have all the righteousness that he provides. And the judge declares you on the basis of your union with that Jesus. Innocent. Righteous. Paul says in in the rest of verse 16, we Jews also have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that's, that's me and you, Peter, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying, Peter, we as, we as Jews, of all people, we've been under the law. We know that it doesn't save anyone. We know that. We've experienced the law. That's why we trusted in Jesus. So why are you now suggesting to these Gentiles that they need some faith in Jesus plus these works. Point three. Oh, I was in the wrong one. That was confusing. I was supposed to be on that. Here we are. Reestablishing the law 
actually makes you a lawbreaker. These are the most difficult. And we're gonna, these are very difficult verses to understand, and we're going to dip into them quickly and dip out and close off. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Okay, so, so quickly here. Paul gives an, a potential objection. And this is what was happening behind the scenes. This is going to be complicated for a minute, and if you, it's too complicated, just don't worry. If you Jews, Peter and Paul, seek to be righteous by putting your faith in Christ, okay, and that pursuit of Christ causes you to reject the law of Moses, then you've actually made Christ a promoter of sin because rejecting the law of Moses is sin. Not going to repeat that. But he says Christ is absolutely not a promoter of sin. The problem is you don't understand what the law was for in the first place. Paul turns the tables on him in verse 18. You see that part that he says, what I've destroyed? What he's destroyed in verse 18 is the law of Moses. When Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled, remember that, that graphic I gave you at the beginning, that diagram I gave you at the beginning. When Christ died on the cross, he fulfilled all the law's demands, okay? And therefore, that law doesn't stand against anyone who is in Christ. Because it doesn't stand against him because he fulfilled it all. You see, the law was given to guide Israel in how to live until the Messiah came. The law was intended to show Israel that they needed a Messiah to save them from their sinfulness. But if you try to reestablish the law after the Messiah has come, you actually sin against the, the purpose of the law in the first place. That's what he means by being a lawbreaker at the end. Okay, so in this last section then, verses 19 through 21, Paul gives a final argument. Why you cannot revert to the law. You can't go back to this law-keeping. And his basic point is, is, is pushing the same way. The law is dead to you if you are in Christ. If you are united to Christ, the law does not stand against you. Verses 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christians have died to the law because they're united to Jesus. I want you to look quickly back at verse 15. He says there, We too have been justified by faith in Christ. Those two words, in Christ, are crucial. When you put your faith in Christ, God says you are spiritually united to him such that all that is his becomes yours. His death, your death. His resurrection life, the promise of your resurrection life. His righteousness, your righteousness. That's why God doesn't condemn you. That's why Paul can say in verse 20, 
I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Because you're you're united to him. That's why I can say that. How? The The Spirit of Christ resides in Christians. Not in a mystical way, not in a feelings way. Christian, you have the Spirit of Christ whether you feel exhausted and depressed. It's not based on some feeling. It's a bedrock truth of who you are. Well, if Jesus' death is your death, you need to understand that Jesus' death marks the end, the death of the old covenant law and sacrifices and ceremonies because they all pointed to Jesus, the goal. And when the goal arrives, you don't need the things that point to the goal. Therefore, if you are united to Jesus' death, the law and all its judgment cannot stand against you. It can't. It doesn't stand against you because it doesn't stand against Jesus. To go back to the law is to turn back the clock of history to a Christless experience. Who would want to do that? Paul says Christ lives in you. The moment you put your faith in Christ, the old self is gone. Your your old self, along with the law and the sacrifices and all that stuff, gone. History. And now even, he says, even in these old decaying bodies, we are spiritually made new and we live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Friends, this is the posture. This is the posture of the whole Christian life. The posture of the whole Christian life is not one of working to please God, but embracing the Son of God by faith who already works for you. The Christian life is fundamentally about trusting and treasuring Jesus rather than putting on the hard hat and doing a day's labor for him. Of course, this doesn't mean that the Christian life isn't work. It doesn't mean that. Oh, it, it takes discipline to live as a Christian. It's challenging. And it does, Paul will say, it does work out your life to produce good fruit, good, good things. But our fundamental posture as Christians is to trust and embrace something external to us. Because we fundamentally believe that we don't have what it takes in us. And that's why true Christianity, I mean, the Christianity that you read about actually in the Bible, that that Jesus taught, produces, must produce, humble people and not religiously superior people. We've said a lot. But what does this have to do with us today? No one in this room tonight is anxious about whether they should follow the law of Moses. I don't think anybody. You know, I don't think anybody's going home tonight thinking, oh, I really want to have bacon, but I just I am so feel guilty every time I have bacon. No, that's not happening. We might not be trying to prove ourselves to God by obeying the Mosaic law. I, don't, I doubt anybody's doing that here. But many still try to prove their goodness to God by human effort. I mean, why is it every week 
When I ask this question, I ask, I ask this, this question every week to people I meet in the town center. If you were to meet God, assuming there's a God, let's just assume, and you were to meet him and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And like clockwork, nine out of every ten people, I've actually counted on my thing, nine out of every ten people say something to this effect. I tell him I'm a good person. Haven't done anything that bad. He'd like me. I try to be a good person. I haven't hurt anybody too bad. You know, it's quite remarkable. It's almost as if their answers are so similar. It's almost as if someone is teaching them to say that. Where else would you ask a question? They, everybody asks the same thing. The natural posture of the sinful human heart is self-sufficiency. I am going to prove myself to God. They're saying, at the end of the day, I don't need him, and he really needs me. I'm self-sufficient. Friends, you need Jesus. We all do. You are drowning in the ocean of your sin. <laughs> and there is a, the ocean, and there's a boat that's coming by to rescue you. And the only chance you got of survival is clinging and embracing to that boat. Relying on your goodness is like drowning in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. The boat comes by and you say, listen, thanks, but I think I'm sorted. I can probably get back to shore on my own. It's hopeless. You got no chance if you try to do it on your own. This kind of prove-yourself attitude to God also affects Christians. Paul says, the life I now live. He's a Christian. Paul, I, live, I, live, I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. You don't become a Christian apart from works and then you figure out the rest of it by works. No, he lives by faith right now as a Christian. What motivates the way you live? Is it faith and trust that Jesus provides everything we need? Let's start with the pastors, the ministers, myself included. I realize Ian's not in here. He'll, he'll listen to it online. Ian, Ian, Luke, it's good for you to overhear this application to ourselves. Are we in ministry to make a name for ourselves? Do we feel really loved by God when people are filling the church and impacted by our sermons, is our joy in Christ proportionate to the success we find in ministry? Church, keep, keep us. Here's a, here's a command from me. Not, not from the Lord. Keep us humble. Not by your absence. Not by your cold hearts. We need encouragement. But not only by telling us our sermons were, were, were good or, or anything like that. That's fine. But encourage us with the word. I was, I was reading in the Bible how what, it, what, what the responsibility of an elder is, and that's a tremendous responsibility, and I'm praying for you. That, that's real, real encouragement, and it keeps us humble. Or how about this? Do you feel like coming to church only when you are really doing well in your relationship with Jesus? When you're a failure, when you're depressed, when you're really dealing with a serious sin in your life, does that make you want to avoid God's word and God's people? 
brothers and sisters, you don't come to the church, you don't come to church on the basis of your own goodness. You don't read the Bible because you've been a good boy. You don't pray when you've got your life sorted. You come to Jesus for one reason. Because you're broken. This is a place for broken, sin-sick people that do not think they have their life sorted. If you come for any other reason than you're broken, friends, you're not coming for the right reason. You are missing the gospel in a totally different direction. Or how about this? Want a clear indicator that we have a legalistic heart? Do you find comfort before God, not foundationally because of who Jesus is, but by comparing yourself to others? When I was a young kid, I, uh, I had wanted nothing to do with Christianity, but I still had this sense that, that God was real and I was going to stand before him one day. And so what I would do to kind of salve my conscience because I was living like the devil was I'd look at all the other bad kids and I'd, I would point out in my mind a few that I knew I was better than. As if God has this kind of mix of people, and if I'm just on the kind of 50% of, 51% of more, you know, morally sorted people, then I should be fine. And that would help me kind of continue in my sin and not worry about it. Finding comfort before God by comparing yourself to others betrays a heart that's not actually rooted in the gospel. So let's close. To return to the law is to deny grace. To return to human effort is to deny grace. And what it does is makes Jesus' death meaningless. Verse 21. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Peter's actions suggested, right, that the Gentile Christians can't be full participants in God's family, can't come into the kingdom unless they obey these food laws. That's why I separated from them. And if that's the case, Jesus died for nothing because you would need the law anyways. I can, I can imagine a very broken Peter at this point. Paul has just explained me. Paul's really he's been quite detailed. He's really laid into him here. Paul has just explained to him that his actions imply Jesus' death is useless. Can you imagine looking at Jesus, his face, after he experiences the horrific judgment that you deserved? And you say to him, listen, thanks a lot, but you really didn't need to do that. What a horrible, blasphemous thing to say. That's what we do when we try to earn God's favor with our goodness. Let's be a community, this church. Let's be a community defined by humility. Because we're not good enough on our own. So we're humble. Let's also be a community defined by confidence. Because we're not worried about proving ourselves to others. Because Jesus has already proven himself to God. And when humility and confidence come together, they come together in a church that's putting their full-throated faith and embrace in Jesus. Let's pray.